Well, welcome to The Crossing. So good to see you today. Glad you have made it out here. And would you do me a favor and help me welcome our Southeast Campus, our microsites, and those who are watching online right now? Welcome. As we say, we're one church, multiple locations, so it's great for us just to acknowledge us together as one church body. Well, last week we started this brand new series called Skeptics Wanted. And this series is for anyone who's ever had questions about God. Now, I've had so many conversations over the past week of people who've come up to me, and for the first time they feel safe to ask these questions that they've had, maybe that's been you. Or maybe you have friends who are skeptical about faith, and you don't know what to say. Because they'll come to you and they'll come up with some argument, and you're like, that sounds like a great argument. I don't agree with you, but I don't know how to tell you why I believe. Well, my goal for this series, my goal for this series is to begin to build a foundation for our faith. I'm not going to answer all your questions. You're not going to come out of here and be able to, to have an argument with anybody that you want to, and not even that that is the goal here. But here's what we want to do. Here's what we want to do is the Apostle Peter says to always be prepared to give an answer for the reason for the hope that you have. And so we want to set a foundation for that. And as we talked about last week, we want you to take your next step. We want you to take your next step because you can't move away from something without moving towards something else. And so if you are moving away from God or if you're stagnant in your relationship with God, then you are moving towards something else. And so we want to help you strengthen your faith. Well, today, I want to tackle one of the things that people are most skeptical about, and that's the Bible. Sometimes I'll hear people say, well, the Bible is just full of perfect people who had perfect lives, and it's not relevant to our world today. Well, whenever they say that, I know, well, they've not read the Bible, because they don't know what they're talking about. I love what John Ortberg says in one of his books. He gives a summary. He says, Cain is jealous of Abel and kills him. Lamech introduces polygamy to the world. Noah, the most righteous man of his generation, gets drunk and curses his own grandson. Lot, when his home is surrounded by residents of Sodom who want to violate his visitors, offers instead that they can have sex with his daughters. Abraham plays favorites between his sons Isaac and Ishmael, and they're estranged. Isaac plays favorites between his sons Jacob and Esau, and they become bitter enemies for 20 years. Jacob plays favorites between Joseph and his other 11 sons, and the brothers want to kill Joseph and end up selling him into slavery. Their marriages are disasters. Abraham slept with his wife's servant, then sends her and their son off into the wilderness because of his wife's request. Isaac and Rebekah fight over which boy is going to get their blessing. Jacob marries two wives and ends up with both of their maids as his concubines as well when they get into a fertility contest with each other. Jacob's firstborn son, Reuben, sleeps with his father's concubine. Another son, Judah, sleeps with his daughter-in-law when she disguises herself as a prostitute. These people need a therapist. (laughs) These are not the Waltons. I mean, they need Dr. Phil Dr. Laura, Dr. Ruth, Dr. Spock, Dr. Seuss. I mean, they need somebody in their life. And this is just the first book of the Bible. This ought to make you feel better about your life and your family. You're not so bad after all. So what do we do with the Bible? Do we believe that that the Bible 
Is the Word of God or is it just another religious book like the Quran or the Book of Mormon? Do we believe, do you believe that the events in the Bible really happen? Or are they just a collection of fairy tales and stories? I told you last week about the story of my grandfather. That as he began to read through his Bible, there was questions that he was not able to ask anybody, and it eventually led to him walking away from his faith. See, one of Satan's greatest tactics is to cause people to lose their faith in Scripture before they lose their faith in God. Do you remember what happened in Genesis chapter 3 when the serpent said to Eve, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Because if Satan can get you to question God's word, then disobedience doesn't seem like such a big deal after all. When I was a kid, my dad used to say, well, the Bible said it, I believe it, and that's good enough for me. You know, the Bible told me so. Well, maybe you're at the place of going, I don't take it like that. Because I'm more skeptical. And so the question for us is, can the Bible really be trusted? Can we trust the Bible? Well, let me start off with, by asking this. Is what does the Bible say about itself? What does the Bible say about itself? Because the Bible actually makes some claims about itself. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12 says, For the word of God is alive and active. Sharper than any double-edged sword, it penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. See, the Bible's not just a historical book. It is alive and active. That's why sometimes when you come in here on a Sunday, you're like, you've been in my house. Somebody's been telling you what's going on in my life. Well, that's not me. I'm not good enough. That's God. That's God meeting you in your place. That's the power of God's word. That the power of God's word is that it transforms even your thoughts and your emotions. Mark chapter 13, 31, Jesus said, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. That is an incredible claim. That's an incredible claim. Because if I said to you that, you know, what I say here today will never pass away. You'd go, okay, you're nuts. You're crazy because eventually it will all be forgotten. When Jesus says this, it's an incredible claim. It can't just be a good moral teaching. He's making a claim about himself. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17 says, All scripture is God-breathed and it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. That this book right here, the Bible, it is it's to teach us. It's to teach us God's word. It says it's useful for rebuking. It's why it convicts us of sin in our life. Correcting so that we can have this life and this character that reflects God. And it's to train us. It's to train us to live right to live in righteousness. But here's the key. It's to equip you for every good work. The Bible is not written so that you can just know more about God. The Bible is written so that you can know how to live your life more like Jesus. That's the reason we have the Bible. And the Bible is the story of God. And it's really not even a book. We call this a book. This is not a book. It's a collection of 66 books. It was written in three different languages, 
by 40 different authors, most of whom who never met each other. It was written over a period of 1,500 years, and it tells one story. If you're a Star Wars fan, you know that Star Wars has nine episodes, but it tells one story. The Bible tells one story, and it can be summed up in one sentence. Here's the story of the Bible. It's how God worked in history to restore a relationship with broken people like us. That's the Bible in one sentence. It's how God worked in history to restore a relationship with broken people like us. It's about restoration. It's about redemption. Let me just try to simplify the Bible for you. Because maybe you, you look at this and you don't know how this all fits together. You don't know what the Old Testament is different from the New Testament. You don't know how it all fits together. So let me just simplify this story of redemption for you. Is that after the fall of man, when Adam and Eve committed the sin in the garden, there was separation for God, from God for the first time. And the story of the Old Testament is God being with his people, providing a way. It's the story of God with his people, and it's pointing at this one fact that a Savior is coming. That a Savior is coming to restore that relationship back with his people. And it points to that one relationship of Jesus, that a Savior has come. Jesus is the central character of the Bible, and salvation is the central theme. And the entire New Testament points back at Jesus points back at how we, how we follow Jesus, how as a follower of Christ acts, that a Savior is coming back, so this is how we live. The entire Old Testament is pointing to a Savior is coming, and Jesus comes. The Savior has come. He is the central figure. And all of the New Testament points back to He's coming back. So this is how we are to live our life. So maybe you hear that, and what begins to conjure up in you are some objections about the Bible. Or maybe you have some friends who give you these objections and you just don't know what to say. Let me just tackle a few of the biggest objections to the Bible. Here's the first one. Is, isn't the Bible full of contradictions? I mean, you've heard this argument that why aren't the accounts of the Gospels the same? Well, let me help you understand the Gospels and the Gospel writers and why they wrote each of their books. Matthew was a tax collector, but he was one of the disciples. So he's an eyewitness. Matthew's an eyewitness of everything that's going on. And Matthew's main point of writing his gospel is to write it to a Jewish audience to say, the Savior that would always been promised by God, let me tell you why you can believe in him. John. John was also one of the 12 disciples, an eyewitness. He was Jesus' best friend. He was, he was the one who was closest to Jesus. And he writes his gospel to prove that Jesus is the Son of God. That if you don't know what to do with God because there's all of these religions out there, here's why you can believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Mark was not a disciple, probably an eyewitness of events that happened with Jesus. But he gets his source from, the, from Peter. Peter is his main source, and he writes his gospel to prove the identity and purpose of Jesus. And he's writing to a Greek audience. That's why oftentimes he will, he will define different things that happen in Jewish culture for his audience. And then Luke was a doctor who becomes an investigative reporter. He's this reporter who goes and interviews all of the eyewitnesses so he can put together this chronological, accurate account of Jesus' life. So when you read the Gospels, you find exactly what you would expect to find. 
One person emphasizes certain events for his audience. Another one emphasizes certain events for his audience, but the story is the same. It's like if I asked you to describe the Super Bowl. Some of you are Patriot fans, and you would say, the Super Bowl was the greatest comeback of all time. Some of you are Falcon fans, and you would say, the Super Bowl was the greatest implosion of all time by a team. Some of you would say, oh, Lady Gaga, that was my favorite part of the Super Bowl. You know, I liked Lady Gaga or the commercials. See, if all the details are the same, you would think that we just got together and made it all up. The fact that the Gospels are different points to the fact that four guys are just writing down the way that they saw. Here's second objection. Here's second one. Is what about the errors in the Bible? Isn't the Bible just full of errors? What about those errors? Well, throughout the Bible, it mentions thousands of people groups, mountains, rivers, towns, and cities. Luke, in his gospel alone, mentions 32 countries, 54 cities, and nine islands. And not once, not once has there been any evidence found that disproves the Bible. Not once. Why is that important? Because if what the Bible says about history is true, then maybe what, God, what the Bible says about God and what the Bible says about you is true as well. But people will argue, well, well, maybe the Bible was correct at one time, but you have all of these copies of copies of copies, and it's just full of errors today. Well, let me ask you, what do you make copies of? You know, when you go to Kinko's or maybe you have a copy machine in your house, what do you make copies of? You make copies of things that you want to preserve. You make copies of things that are important. You're important things. These Bible documents were so important that they copied them with extreme care. That the Jewish scribes, that it was their job to transcribe the Bible. The Jewish scribes didn't trans transcribe word by word. They transcribed letter by letter. And when they transcribed the first five books of the Old Testament, which is called the Pentateuch or the Torah, they knew the middle, what the middle letter was in all five books. So when they finished transcribing, they would go to the middle letter, and then they would count both directions, and if it didn't match, they would throw the whole thing away. They would get rid of it. This is why when they found the Dead Sea Scrolls, this was such a big find. Because the Dead Sea Scrolls were the largest documents that had been found to that day. And they matched all of our modern documents that we had, the most current ones. They matched them all. It's why it was such a big deal. And it, maybe you've heard the argument, well, there's so many copies that, that there's all of these errors. I have great news for you. If you buy any English study Bible, all of the major differences are in the footnotes of your Bible. There's no secrets. There's not like this secret society. We better keep this a secret so people don't find out. It's all right there. That's why when you're reading your Bible, you'll see a footnote that says, an earlier manuscript said this, that all of those discrepancies are there, and they make no theological difference. It's not like one manuscript says that Jesus rose from the dead, and the other one said he's still buried, you can go see his body. They make no theological difference. These are, these are minor variations, and all of the ones that make a difference, they are in the footnote. So the argument that the Bible has changed is just not true. It's just not true. Here's the third objection is how can we know that the Bible's really true? How can we know that the Bible's really true? A lot of people believe that our faith is dependent on the Bible. And if someone disproves the Bible 
then Christianity crumbles. But I think it's the opposite. I think it's the opposite. Let me explain it this way. A few years ago, I was applying for a passport. And I was getting my, my first passport, and I was applying for it, and you have to have a birth certificate. Well, I hadn't seen my birth certificate in years. And so I did maybe what you did. We began to tear my house apart looking for my birth certificate. I mean, we looked in the file cabinet. We started going through boxes that had been on the shelves that we hadn't opened for years. We started looking everywhere. I called my mom. I'm like, Mom, I cannot find my birth certificate. Do you have my birth certificate? She said, I've not seen that since Little League Baseball. I have no idea where your birth certificate is. So I wrote the state of Kansas, where I'm born. I wrote the state of Kansas. I gave them my birth date. And then a few weeks later, they sent me my birth certificate. My birth certificate that says that I was born in Wichita, Kansas. I mean, this is it right here. Now, I do not exist because my birth certificate says I exist. I existed before I could find it. This birth certificate documents something that happened. Christianity does not exist because of the Bible. That is not the reason it exists. The Bible documents something that happened. The Bible documents the Christian faith. And here's what you need to understand about the Christian faith, that Christianity is not based on a book. Most religions are based on a book or a prophet or a teacher, and Christianity has all of those things, but it's not based on those things. The entire Christian faith is based on a single event, the resurrection of Jesus. And if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, this is what the Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then your faith is useless. But if he did, if he did rise from the dead, then what he said in the Bible is true. See, had Jesus not lived been crucified, buried, and rose three days later, your New Testament would not exist. The Bible documents the Bible documents something that happened. And because it happened, then it's relevant for our lives. So what do we do with all of this? What do we do with all this? If you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to James chapter 1. We're going to look at a few verses that I think will kind of put an exclamation point on this talk. James was written by the brother of Jesus. Now, I've said this before. It's pretty cool. What would it take for your brother to convince you that he was the son of God? He would have to rise from the dead, right? I mean, your brother is not, you're not going to believe that your brother is the son of God. Well, James was a doubter. He was a skeptic of Jesus until Jesus died on the cross and he rose from the dead. And then James becomes this leader in the church. Here's what he writes in James chapter 1, beginning in verse 22. He says, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. This word, merely listen, it's where we get our English word, audit. I don't know if you've ever audited a class before. It's kind of cool because you can go to a class and you can show up, but you don't have to do any of the work. You don't have to take the test. You don't have to worry about a grade. But it doesn't count. It, it does not count. James says, do not merely audit the word. Don't merely listen to the word. Do what it says. Apply it to your life. That when you come, that if you come and hear God's word, but you don't apply it to your life, here's what he says. He says it doesn't count. You are deceiving yourself. 
that you have deceived yourself if you just listen to it and you don't apply it to your life. He goes on, verse 23. He says, anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in a mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. He gives us great word picture here. He gives us this great word picture that everybody in here can relate to. He's saying that coming to a place like this and and hearing God's word being taught or opening your Bible and reading what God says, that you become aware of something in your life that needs to change and then to not change. He says what that's like, it's like walking into your bathroom in the morning. You flip on the light, you look in the mirror and you go, whoa, rough night. And then you just walk out and you go to work or you go to school without doing anything about it. See, a mirror, that when you begin to to look at a mirror, the purpose of a mirror is to accurately reflect you. It's to accurately reflect who you are. It's to discern imperfections so that you can do something about it. The purpose of God's word is to give you an accurate picture of you so that you can become more like Jesus. See, that's the purpose of God's word. It becomes this mirror for us. It becomes this mirror that begins to make a difference. The application is what makes a difference. See, looking into the mirror does not make me any prettier. i got to do something with what I see. You have to apply it to your life. And then he ends like this, verse 25. He says, but whoever looks intently, some of you have one of those mirrors that have all the lights and it's magnifying. This is that idea of looking intently. He goes, but whoever looks intently into the perfect law, that's just the scriptures. Whoever looks intently into the perfect laws that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they've heard, but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. They'll be blessed in what they do. You'll be blessed in doing it, obeying it. James says that when you do this, that brings freedom. Here's my hunch. My hunch is, is there's a lot of people that do not associate God's word with freedom. See, when I was a kid, I thought the Bible could be summed up in one word. No. What's God's word say about that? No. God, can I do that? No. But then I grew up, and I began to look in the mirror of God's word. And God's word teaches us to forgive. To which we push back on and we go, are you kidding me? Do you know what they did to me? Do you know what they said to me? Because the, the world says, you get back. You just, you just get even. But God's word says to forgive, and when you forgive, it brings freedom. God's word says that sexual intimacy is for marriage. People go, oh, come on. Oh, that's so outdated. But God says that purity paves the way for intimacy, and that brings freedom. When it comes to money, God says that if you put him first, you will experience a level of financial freedom that few people have. When you apply God's word to your life, it brings freedom. It brings freedom. There's there's a famous quote from Jesus that we often hear. It's this quote that you shall know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Usually you hear it at the climax of a movie or law and order. I mean, it's like right at the end, you know, you have somebody on the witness stand and you have the attorney who's going, tell him the truth because you shall know the truth and the truth will set you free. 
Well, let me tell you how Jesus actually said this. We're going to back up just one verse. It's found in John chapter 8. Here's what Jesus says. He says, if you hold to my teachings, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. See, freedom comes from applying God's word to your life. That if you hold to my teachings, Jesus says, then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. That freedom comes from applying God's word to your life. The Bible is the most despised, derided, denied, disputed, dissected, debated, outlawed, and destroyed book ever. And it has the potential to change your life. It has the potential to change your life. So here's what I want to ask you to do. Maybe you're skeptical about faith. Maybe it's just at the basis of your Bible that you just always had some skepticism there. Or maybe you know someone who is. I want to give you two challenges. Number one, number one challenge is I want you to begin to read it. And you go, well, I don't believe it's true. You read all kinds of stuff that you don't believe is true. You read stuff on the internet all the time. <laughs> so well, why don't you give the Bible a chance? Here's my challenge for you. is for the next 30 days, you take 10 minutes. 10 minutes. Five minutes you read your Bible and five minutes you pray. 10 minutes a day. Five minutes you're reading God's word, and five minutes you're just talking to God for 30 days and see what God could do. See what God would begin to do in your life. Pick, a, pick some type of a, of a study that you can read through. I always use the YouVersion app. And in the YouVersion app, there's all kinds of studies that you can do, um, <clears throat> all kinds of readings that you can do. Right now, I'm reading through the the Bible chronologically this year. That's what I'm doing. Maybe it's just fine. I just want to read just a chapter a day. I'm just going to read just a chapter a day and spend some time in prayer. That I want to challenge you to begin to read God's Word and see what God would do. Here's my second challenge for you. Second application is that you would pick a life verse for yourself. You would pick a verse that applies to your life that for you, you read it and you go, that's the promise God has for me. That's a reminder of his presence, that it's his purpose for your life, for your life, and you memorize it. I oftentimes, I'll try to attach a scripture to something I'm going through, every situation. When I'm going through hard times, I try to find a verse for that situation. When I'm trying to challenge myself, when I'm facing some next steps that I don't know what to do, I try to find a verse and memorize it. On my desk right now is the verse, be strong and courageous. It's just a reminder to me as a leader that I need to be strong and courageous in my leadership. I just have it on my desk, just a reminder for me. But my life verse, the, the verse that became my life verse I've had since I was a teenager, the Bible that I had when I was a kid, it has this verse on. It's Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. This has been my life verse. It says this. It says, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Till the day of Christ Jesus. That he who began a good work in you. It's a reminder, it's not my good work. It's God's good work in me. It's what God's doing in me. And this good work he started it years ago. 
being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it to completion. God began this work in me years ago, and he promises to complete it. So I'm just going to be confident in that. No matter where I find myself in my life, I'm just going to be confident. God has me right where he wants me. He's going to complete his work in me. That's my verse. So here's my challenge for you. Ten minutes a day. You would read God's word. Five minutes, you'd pray five minutes. And then you would find a life verse for you that brings hope into you, that you just memorize it. When you're going through stuff, you just, you begin to quote that scripture to yourself. You speak truth to yourself.